You're listening to The Desk Set, a bookish podcast for reading broadly. We're your hosts, Emily Calkins and Britta Barrett. On this episode, we talk to Katrina Carrasco about The Best Bad Things, her queer historical novel set in Port Townsend's seedy underbelly. Then we talk to Kesey Young about Taproot, a cute and creepy graphic novel. Finally, we'll have a conversation with KCLS staff about their favorite queer titles and the system's work with LGBTQ plus youth. Before we get started, we just wanted to make a note that we experienced some sound issues while recording this episode. At the beginning of the interview with our first guest, you'll hear some background voices. And in our third segment, there's a chirping sound that occurs throughout the segment. We're sorry about that. It's us, not you. So don't pull your car over to the side of the road. And we promise we'll fix it for next time. It's just one of those fun things about recording in a public space. <laughs> Thanks for understanding. My name is Katrina Carrasco. Um, I'm a writer and I live here in Seattle. And The Best Bad Things is my debut novel. It came out last November, November 2018. And um, working on a new project now. And it's also going to be set in the Pacific Northwest. And the Pacific Northwest is kind of a character in your story. I read somewhere that you actually wrote some great passages while on the ferry. Did you spend a lot of time going to Port Townsend to research it? I did. Um, I love Port Townsend. It was kind of my running joke that I hope they'll let me go back and visit after writing this book with their town as a character that sometimes is a little scruffy you know, <laughs> around the edges. Um, I did write some, some great scenes on the ferry. I did quite a bit of traveling to Port Townsend. I also go to Whidbey Island a lot um, just to write and kind of get away from the city. And it was on one of the ferries back from Whidbey that actually wrote the last scene of the book. But very early on, so obviously no spoilers, but I had a post-it note on my desk the entire drafting process that said, like, it has to end this way. Because <laughs> <laughs> I kept wanting to change my mind. But We were talking about the book before you came in, and I was saying, like, I love the ending so much. Oh, good. It's hard to talk about. <laughs> I don't want to spoil it, but yeah. <laughs> you sort of give it away at the very beginning. Right. And yet... So it both felt inevitable, and I was like, what? <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about how you structured the book? Sure. Um, right, so the the beginning is kind of tied to the ending, which you'll kind of know when you get there. Um, I really wanted to play with form. I think in a lot of ways the book is playing with different tropes and genres, but at its heart, I really feel like it's a literary fiction character study of Alma, the main character. And when I decided, like, okay, I'm going to play with crime fiction and mystery fiction, historical fiction, I also thought, well, let's get really messy and play with form. And um, the transcript chapters are kind of the, the direct descendant of that choice. Uh, but at the start, in the first draft that was completed, there was also an entire thread that's told in first person in Alma's voice. And um, the, the little snippet at the beginning of the book is the only piece of it that remains. But originally there was kind of a third red herring strand. And my editor, bless her, was like, calm down. <laughs> that's a lot for people to follow. Um, and at first I, I didn't agree with her, but in retrospect, I think she had a very good point where there's a lot going on. There's a lot of stuff to track. Um, and I think we pared it down enough to where there's still lots of cool stuff happening, like content wise, form wise, but it's not, you know, the kitchen sink where I could have done everything, but it would have been even more for the reader to sort of keep track of. For listeners who haven't read the book, can you tell us more about Alma? Sure. Um, I'll just do a little blurb of the book because it includes her. So it's um, a story that takes place in Port Townsend in 1887 when it was part of Washington Territory. And Alma Rosales is a former Pinkerton detective who goes undercover to investigate opium smuggling in the town. And while she's there, she takes on various different disguises and 
sort of early the first third, the mystery becomes who is she and who is she working for and what's she really up to. And you mentioned that this is sort of a genre blending or defying piece of work. Do you think there's something inherently queer about not being able to fit in like a tidy little box? I love that question so much. (laughs) Um, I think that's a wonderful way of putting it, kind of resisting categorization, um, doing things differently, doing things in ways that might surprise or even upset people if they expect things to be a certain way. Um, I think in a lot of ways, and I know I'm not supposed to read, you know, Goodreads and all those things, and like, (laughs) those are for readers, not for me, and I understand, but from this, some of the feedback I've gotten or read about the book, people seem very confused by it because I guess in some ways it's packaged as a mystery and people maybe expect something else when they take a mystery off the shelf. Um, And as a writer, you know, I'm trying to communicate something like I wrote this so people would read it and be like, Oh, this is something new, something that's expanding my ideas of, of what fiction can do um, of queer people in fiction And so in a way, when the book kind of gets misread that way, I almost take it personally like Alma's getting misread. And I think that directly correlates to kind of queerness. And when you push boundaries and you do things in weird, unexpected ways, it's amazing. But not everyone's going to be picking up what you're putting down, basically. (laughs) Um, So I, I do think that it's exactly what I want it to be. But the flip side of that is sometimes when people read it, they're a little bit unsure. And um, I think there's a lot of parallels to queerness with that. Thank you for that question. (laughs) Um, Speaking of that sort of expectations, uh, Port Townsend in the 1880s doesn't seem necessarily like the most natural setting for a biracial queer protagonist. Mm -hmm. How did you decide to bring those things together? Sure. Um, So the queer part was always super important, and her um, ethnicity was very important. I'm Latinx. My mom's Ecuadorian-American, and I always wanted to read more books where the main characters were Latinx people. And I came out later in life, but sort of was always wondering and questioning my own identity as a younger person, um, and always reading books about queer people and sort of like, took a long time to put two and two together. (laughs) Um, And then I did, and it was great. Um, But also, I was always gravitating towards those stories, and I wanted to create a story where that main character kind of encapsulated everything that I had always wanted in a book. Um, And while Port Townsend might seem not the most natural choice for that, Um, I decided to have Alma be Mexican-American because there was such a large population of folks in Southern California, which is sort of where she is from, and then ends up being in place in that area to get called up to San Francisco and then to Port Townsend and sort of make her way north that way. So while she's a little bit of an anomaly, she's certainly historically plausible. Um, Just with Delphine, one of the other main characters, She is a black woman, and there weren't large black communities in Washington and in Oregon. You couldn't stay if you were African-American, but there was a large black community in Vancouver. So Delphine having people and being able to fit in also is historically plausible. Um, But I didn't want to write a book with a bunch of straight white folks, and so I didn't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think you make a good point that you know, part of what happens is people are erased from historical records. Mm-hmm. And so then when writers are using those historical records to to create the background for their story, it's not there. But it doesn't mean that it's not historically plausible. And if you do just right. a little digging, you know, it, it is there. Um, you mentioned that you read a lot of stories um, with queer characters in them. Can you talk about some of the things that you read that that where you were looking for your own identity and your own experience? Yeah, um, I think as a younger person, a lot of the books I found had queer men in them more than queer women. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's an issue that I've sort of been grappling with 
um, since coming out is the question of would I have been able to come out sooner? I'm lesbian. If I'd seen more lesbians in pop culture, in books in movies, um, I don't feel like I grew up super sheltered, but I honestly don't think I ever saw a lesbian <laughs> until I was in college. I mean, and I don't even mean in person. I mean, you know, in a movie, in a book. Um, and I, I just wonder what would have happened for me personally differently if I'd been able to access more stories and there'd been more visibility for me um, into queer communities. So once I got into my 20s and started exploring more purposefully for queer content with female-identified people, um, I really found Sarah Waters. Mm -hmm. And um, her books are important to me. Jeanette Winterson is important to me as a writer. Um, I really love Ali Smith, who um, How to Be Both was probably oh, my yeah. favorite book from last year. I found it just last year, um, and I just loved everything about it. It was like <laughs> a checklist of everything I love in a book in one place. Um, but probably, I think Sarah Waters, many people owe a great debt to her for <laughs> being the first book that we read. I read Tipping the Velvet uh, partly on buses. And some of those scenes, you know, you have to just sort of be like, no one else around me can see what I'm doing, because this is, this is a lot. But it was fun. <laughs> go back to sort of the erasure question and the, the research. Um, it, it reminded me of an anecdote I found, because I also tried to research queer people in history, queer examples that I could base Alma on, especially if she were wearing men's clothing and presenting as a man, um, looking for any kind of historical materials for that. And I found some examples of people who um, now there's questions about whether or not they might have been trans individuals, so that's unclear. But a couple of people lived in the San Francisco area in the late 1800s timeframe that I sort of used to inform Alma. But the piece I'm thinking of was um, they in this great compendium of Port Townsend history, they have sort of like a running list of coroner's records to make the point that there were quite a lot of deaths and murders when it was sort of a boom town. Um, and there was this one entry where it was um, a woman's body was found drowned. They thought maybe she fell off a steamboat, but she was wearing men's clothing and had cards in her pockets with addresses in Seattle, but no information on the body as to who the person was, what their name was. And that was just really illustrative to me about how there were, there were so many queer people, of course, and we don't get visibility into that. And oftentimes, you know, all we get are these tiny pieces. Um, it really broke my heart that that was such a sad anecdote, but also, you know, people were there, people were living their lives. So, And because your character is not only bisexual, but also biracial, there's this tension between, like, the privilege of passing through various mm -hmm. situations or, you know, just sort of as, like, a, a necessary survival instinct, mm -hmm. but then also that, like, erasure of not feeling very seen. Um, could you talk to the ways that Alma uses that to her advantage? Mm-hmm. So she definitely capitalizes upon being able to pass as white. Um I had more in the story originally, more opportunities for her to be speaking Spanish to sort of like flag more of her Latinx identity. And those kind of got simplified out a little bit. There's pieces in there. Um, I would have liked there for there to be more for that specific aspect of her character. Um, but she's a chameleon. I think she really performs to survive and um, especially with, with passing as white, and being able to, you know, pass as a Scottish governess and go to a fancy restaurant with, with her mark, basically. Um, it's a form of disguise for her. It's a way of doing her job. Um, but I think it's also pretty easy for her to pass in that way. And yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to exploring her backstory more. I'm not supposed to talk too much about it, but I'm working <laughs> on a project where I'm getting more into her history. And I think this book is so focused intentionally. So on the present moment, I didn't go into backstory. I wanted to keep it very, it's in, you know, present tense, like very immediate 
very close third. I wanted it to feel like it was all happening at once. Um, and so I resisted giving a lot of information about backstory, but there's a lot more about Alma that I'm still learning and I'm excited to find out kind of how that will, will play into a different story to come. (laughs) (laughs) I loved her. I mean, I think it's, when you say it's a character study, that definitely rings true with my experience. Like I read it super fast. I love the whole thing, but she's just like so captivating. And I wonder if you think of her as an anti-hero because she does a lot of not so nice things, but she's also very sympathetic in some ways. The yeah. best bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> you <laughs> might say. <laughs> I'm so glad that you liked her so much. I love her. Um, I do think she's kind of an anti-hero. Um, the way I've described her before that makes sense to me is she's pure id. She doesn't stop and be like, this isn't a great idea. She'll just be like, this is going to get me what I want, so I'm going to do it. Um, and for that reason, she does a lot of stuff that isn't great. But I actually, um, this came up at a reading I did where I was explaining her behavior. And my friend in the audience raised her hand and was like, you're making a lot of apologies for her. And I was like, oh, no, because I don't want to do that. <laughs> Um, And I was, I was like, well, she's not the greatest, but I really like her. And I was explaining this away in a way that I, I didn't realize I was doing. Um, I intentionally made her a woman who does bad stuff and does not get punished for it. Because I feel like so many narratives about women in particular are woman does something bad, learns her lesson in a terrible way. Woman does nothing bad, learns a lesson in a really awful way anyways, you know, and I didn't want to have a story where she was being punished for doing whatever she wanted. Um, And to me, that was a very important part of writing it where I kind of let her do whatever. It was fun to draft her because she kind of picked up speed and I'd be like, okay, here's a fight. And she'd be like, yeah. (laughs) Um, and that great way that characters kind of gather to themselves when you've spent enough pages with them and they, they sort of have a sensible way of acting to you. Not like it's smart, but that <laughs> you know the lo- the thing that they're likely to do as a character. So when she hit that point and I would put her in these dangerous situations and just watch her do her thing, it was really refreshing to me as the author as the person in control of that story to be like oh this scene's not going to end with her like getting unmasked and assaulted or so you know like that was never going to happen to her because that's not what I wanted from this story and um while I I do think she is a version of an anti-hero I think she's also a woman who's doing whatever she wants and I as an author am refusing to punish her for that So that's a very important part of the story for me. So you mentioned that there are several scenes where there's a fight. Yeah. And (laughs) the the whole book is full of physicality. There's lots of sex. There's lots of fighting. And I wondered, like, are you a boxer? Or did you just do, like, a ton of research on what it feels like to, like, get beat up and beat people up? Because it's um, so physical. I did take boxing lessons to learn about it. I wanted to be able to write the fight scenes and not be like, and then she threw a right hook, like, and, and not understand what I was doing. I ended up loving boxing. It was, it was really fun. Um, I have always been an athlete. I used to play basketball, I did rowing, now I do powerlifting, I do boxing just for, I don't fight, like, I don't spar, but I enjoy doing different bag work and mitt work. Um, And that was an important part of Alma's character, too, was a very physical character, because I think a lot of times, again, with female characters, typically, you know, it's, it's the whole line, oh, women don't do that, women couldn't do that. And I wanted a character who can. And I also was able to find historical precedent for that because in the late 1800s is when um, the strongman kind of sideshow thing started happening. And there were women who were in the weightlifting world um, and they were eating their high protein diets and lifting men over their heads. And (laughs) these were Victorian era women. Um, So there was precedent there, too, for someone who was female bodied to be strong and active and physical. Um, again, like not expected, but the historical precedent is there. Mm-hmm. So 
she could be real. (laughs) (laughs) So the book opens with uh, a character getting shot, and it's kind of all downhill from there in terms of (laughs) the personal safety and security of everyone involved. But it's also really fun. Like, the book is fun, and I think that has to goes back to sort of what you're saying about Alma just doing what she wants mm-hmm. and basically kind of getting away with it mm-hmm. in a way that that's, feels new, I think, because she is a woman. Um, how do you balance that constant violence with uh, and those other dark elements of the plot with making something that feels fun still? Yeah, um, so I think part of that is, for me, including a little bit of my brand of, of dark humor, Um that mostly comes out in the relationship between Alma and Wheeler. That's kind of a foundational relationship in the book. They're a classic odd couple, and I think their bantering and the way that they sort of joke with each other, even when you think they might be going to kill each other, <laughs> um, that was a really useful channel for me to bring in. I don't know if I'd call it levity, but, like, I think some of their exchanges are hilarious. Mm -hmm. And, um, of course, sort of, like, the rotating cast of Wheeler's henchmen all have their own funny moments. Um, But that was was a conscious decision on my part to to not bog down the narrative. I didn't want to get caught in the violence. Um, Part of that is Alma enjoys violence, and so I didn't want the reader's experience to be so far from hers. I think part of the book is, is really harnessed to her point of view. It's really harnessed to her perspective and her energy. So if she's out there enjoying all these brawls, um, I think getting that humor in there, getting these exchanges kind of enables the reader to have that, that experience of what's happening with some of the fighting. Um, that being said, I am not really into consuming violent media. Like, I don't watch a lot of violent TV shows. I don't watch a lot of violent movies. I'm kind of a wimp, honestly, <laughs> in terms of that. Um, so I, I also feel like I used violence in a way um, where I was trying to be very precise about it. Um, there's some scenes where it's pretty violent and... It's, it's supposed to feel scary. It's supposed to feel gross. Um, I think a lot of times in media, violence is very cartoonish. Like, oh, just shot 12 people, lol. And I, I find that personally kind of upsetting. Um, so I think with the violence in this book, I didn't want to shy away from, like, how much it would hurt if someone punched you in the ribs or how much, you know, it would what would it feel like to be in that body in that fighting? Um, And again, I think that closeness to especially a female bodied person experiencing and sometimes enjoying violence has been very upsetting to some readers because we don't see it very often. Um, Again, getting back to female narratives and what's allowed for women in terms of, you know, learning a lesson or whatnot. I feel like there's very specific times when women are allowed to enjoy violence and it's usually after they've been assaulted that's that's kind of the the narrow path for women to be like now i'm taking revenge and i'm going to enjoy it um and i think that's that's problematic in so many ways um and really limits our ability to imagine women as complex full humans who have ranges of experiences um and it's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately because I'm, I'm trying to write an essay about that and sort of our expectations for uh, of violence in this culture and how it's become almost another way to constrain women and, like, what we're able to do. Um, so all those things went into both the seriousness of, of some of the scenes but also keeping the book from being a slog. You know, mm-hmm. I wanted it to be have, like, that energy um, and have some of Alma's sort of careless spitfire kind of energy in in the fight scenes to make them read a little bit more um, palatable, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then the boxing scene, which is one of my favorites, like that's the epitome to me of it's violence, but it's violence everyone's agreed to, Mm -hmm. you know, 
just like a boxing match that you'd pay to go watch at Emerald Queen. Mm-hmm. Careful if you do that. I've done it before. <laughs> it's fun, but, you know. Well, and there's a lot of character stuff happening in in that scene in particular. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the relationship between her and Wheeler, which I think is fascinating. And there's a lot of character relation stuff happening there. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's interesting to hear you talk about wanting to imbue the violence, both acknowledge sort of the energy of it and also that it is serious because mm-hmm. there are moments where it is really kind of devastating. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to spoil anything. But yeah, it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> like, I have I so many specifics <laughs> I want to talk about here. Um, anyway, I, I guess I don't have a question there. I just, I, that was a really interesting answer and sort of is making me think about the book a little bit differently. So. Oh. And when you were building the world, um, were there any details from, like, the real world of Port Townsend that you wanted to sneak in and anything that was fun just to, like, completely make up? (laughs) Yeah, so I did a ton of research, and the reason I chose Port Townsend is because it actually was an amazingly rich setting for this book. Um, Because of where it was located and because it housed the Puget Sound Custom House in the 1880s, it was a smuggling hub. And the custom house was totally corrupt, so a lot of the custom house stuff in the book um, is drawn from historical fact. Um, it was very close to Victoria, where there were a lot of opium refineries, and there was no... Opium was legal, but you had to pay a tax. So basically, the smugglers were tax evaders. So there was a lot of opium coming through. Um, a lot of the ways that the ring smuggles are based off of actual sm- like documented smuggling cases. It would come on steamboats. It would come on private boats. Um, a few women were arrested with it on their persons under their clothes. There was one anecdote of this woman who had something like 45 pounds of opium on under her dress because women had those big skirts and she had like this case around her hips that was just because opium cans were about five pounds and about that big and she had them just like arrayed around herself (laughs) and then of course she went to trial and was like these men made me do it and the judge was like you're a woman and they let her go and it was like this is ridiculous (laughs) um So, but that all really happened. So Sloan talking about like, oh, I want to use girls. Like all of that is, is really based on stuff that went on. Um, But where I wanted to make a clean break with the historical record was with having real people in the book. Um, I don't have any information about what the actual residents of Port Townsend were up to at that time that I could, that I could, or that I cared to do the digging to kind of corroborate. So I just invented the cast And some of the people were inspired by a few notable townspeople, but I didn't use the same names um, because I think it was fun getting that really firm historical foundation and then just making everything up. (laughs) (laughs) And what are you reading now? I'm reading The Great Believers, which is very sad. (laughs) Um, So I'm reading it a little bit slowly. (laughs) Um, And I'm also reading Dope Sick, and a couple other books on the opioids crisis, um, their research material for my new project. Um, it's not going to be current. It's not going to be set in the current day, but I want to understand what's happening right now with the opioids crisis because there was a very similar thing in the 18, late 1800s um, where people were using a lot of opium-based products and... It was politicized in a very specific way. Um, The government taxed smokable opium very heavily, which was primarily used by Chinese folks. And then the products that were mostly used by white people had almost no taxes. And uh, like correlating to that, there were all sorts of caricatures and racist cartoons and propaganda that kind of cast um, Chinese men in particular who used smokable opium in this very awful negative racist light and then women who use laudanum to quiet their babies were tired mothers and i think there's so many parallels to the opioids crisis and just the the drugs in this country today that i'm very interested in um really understanding what's happening now so that i can use that to inform how i portray what was going on in the late 1800s Thank you so much for coming That was super fun. Thank you both for reading the book. I'm really glad that you liked it so much.
My name is Kizi Young, and I'm a comic artist um, and writer. <laughs> I do both. Um, and my first graphic novel came out in um, September of 2017. It's called Taproot, and it's about a gardener and a ghost. And I love that your artist bio at the end of Taproot says that you draw and write the stories that you wanted to see uh, when you were growing up. Stories starring queer characters with brightness, a little creepiness, and a lot of heart. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, when I was a kid, I grew up in a small town, um, and it was, you know, pretty liberal, um, Washington, like West coast of Washington. But, um, we, uh, didn't have like a huge library or anything like that. And I remember just hanging out, um, every day after school, um, in the YA children's section kind of area and reading, you know, every single queer book that I could get my hands on. <laughs> it was just like a little corner of our local library. Um, and I just, uh, I found that so many of them didn't really represent me or represent what I wanted to see in a story. Um, a lot of them were tragic, <laughs> a lot of sort of very, very realistic stories, I guess, um, really long on, uh, you know, two girls grow up in the fifties and then their parents find out and split them up and short on things like fantasy and sci-fi, um, so when I started doing comics, I, I went back and thought about, you know, what, what would I have loved to see back then? What would have made me really happy and made me feel more fulfilled? And that was the biggest one. You touched on this a little bit, but um, queer characters don't often get happy endings in pop culture. We're seeing more of that now, more diversity of stories. But there's actually a TV trope called Des Dead Lesbians that comes from the fact that lesbian characters are significantly more likely to die than their straight counterparts. And Taproot kind of turns that on its head by starting out uh, with a romance between a living character and a dead character. Were you aware of that trope as you were putting the story together? Um, you know, I actually can't remember if I was aware of that trope by name at that point. Um, the first version of the story was in 2015. Um, so it was a while back. I, I don't know if people had put the name to it in quite as uh, extreme a way as we have now. But um, I did, I was obviously very familiar with the trope in a general sense. Um, I grew up with Buffy and that kind of thing and was, um, you know, very, very aware that that's not how I wanted my story to go. And graphic novels and comics are kind of a unique medium for storytelling. I feel like compared to other mediums, I see more queer representation in them. And I'm wondering if that has to do with the opportunity to show rather than tell this ability to make visible the kinds of things that maybe our existing language hasn't really like caught up to or that we're still trying to find the words for. And also the fact that, like, the world that you draw on the page doesn't have to behave in the same way it does in a medium like film. And I'm curious, what attracts you to creating queer comics, or what do you think it's uniquely capable of doing? Um, yeah, I think that's probably a big part of it. Um, you know, I can maybe get away with more um, in, in certain ways, not in all ways. Um, you know, my book has often been marked as... Uh, 16 plus or even 18 plus. Um, I think mostly by people who haven't read it. <laughs> um, and it does have adult characters. So I, I understand on that level. Um, but because it is a visual medium, um, there's no, no doubt about the fact that these are queer characters. Um, but I, I do think that when you can show instead of telling, um, there's a lot more room for just sort of having the representation there without bringing attention to it necessarily. Um, and I think, you know, that that's both for queer characters and maybe also for other marginalizations. Yeah. I certainly see that in Taproot. Like there's all kinds of skin tones represented and it's never sort of explicit where the story is set. Um, and there's not even really like a lot of cultural markers, but the setting feels very specific. Can you talk about places that inspire you visually? Yeah. <laughs> um, that's actually something that I, I think I would change maybe if I were given another chance to, to go back and do it. I, I would like to add more of those cultural markers because I think that's, you know, an important part of representation. But um, the setting was based on my small town a little bit. Um, it's a, you know, a seaside town on the Western Washington coast. And, um, it was, 
sort of looking back and remembering all of my favorite times there, um, times in the summer when I was hanging out with friends um, on the cemetery on top of the hill and that kind of thing. Uh, so obviously there's there's some differences um, between that, that small town and mine, but um, just sort of pulling from all of my most treasured memories. Um, and a big one was the garden shop uh, that I used to go with my mom because she's a huge gardener. And um, it was actually one of the things that started the story was wanting to pull those memories and make something from them. So the garden shop was a, a really important marker. Yeah, there's so many beautiful gardens and greenery and taproot that it kind of feels like another character in the story. Curious, are you a plant parent yourself? <laughs> um, <laughs> I have a bunch of plants. I'm, I'm not, I don't know if I'm a good plant parent. <laughs> Um, my brother actually works for a garden shop, um, and he had to come over and help save my sugar vine the other day. It got aphids and I didn't know what to do with it. So, um, I, I do my best, but yeah, it, I don't know if I have a green thumb exactly. Can you talk about the supernatural elements of taproot? Where did, where, what inspired those? Yeah, that's a good question. And I'm not really sure where this came from. I think I've just always loved urban fantasy and, you know, um, traditional fantasy and also sci-fi that, that whole genre of using, um, I guess, supernatural elements to tell a story that might not be available to you with just realism. Um, and I, uh, you know, obviously I also like to draw that kind of thing. It's sort of fun, um, to draw ghosts instead of, you know, living people or whatever. I'm wondering if there's a sequel planned. It feels kind of open-ended, like, um, Blue and Hamal could have many more adventures. Do you have more stories in mind for them? I do, actually. <laughs> I don't, I, I can't promise that they'll ever come to fruition, but I do have a second book um, kind of in the works, maybe in the background a little bit. Yay. And we always like to ask, what are you reading now? Um, I'm actually reading a book called uh, Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me. Um, I just picked it up yesterday by uh, Mar Mariko Tamaki and Rosemary Valero O'Connell. It's so good. And are there any other queer comics that you would suggest to our listeners? Yeah, um, let's see. So some of my favorite ones are um, The Witch Boy by Molly Ostertag um, that I've read recently. Um, I also really like... Um, Katie O'Neill, there it is. Um, Katie O'Neill's uh, dragon, tea dragon story is really, really good for you know middle grade, especially. I think, yeah. And then some others that I really enjoy, um, both beyond anthologies, and you know, I I'm actually in the second one, so I guess that's maybe a little self-serving. But um, the other stories that are in those are kind of a really good, um, really diverse sort of scattering of stories that you may not see in other places. Um, and those are also both um, queer sci-fi and fantasy comics. Can you tell us what you're working on now? I know you have a webcomic that's ongoing. Yeah, my webcomic is called Never Heroes, and it's published by Sparkler Monthly. Um, that's uh, in, in partnership with Hiveworks, if you've heard of them. And um, that launched in, I want to say, March of last year. So it's been going on for a little over a year. Um, and I have plans to keep it going for as long as I can. Um, and, uh, that one is a little bit more for, um, older readers. I, would, I put it at 16 plus for sure. Um, it has a little bit more mature content in it, but, um, it's about, you know, three kids, uh, make an accidental deal with a demon one day in the woods and have to deal with the consequences of that. Um, once they're older and they run into each other again. Well, this has been great. <laughs> Thank you for chatting with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. All right, so we are excited to have Stephanie Zero and Kristen Lowry with us today to talk about 
uh, books by LGBTQ plus authors. Can you guys introduce yourselves? Yes, my name is Kristen Lowry, and I'm a program assistant at KCLS. I use the pronouns they and she, and I am uh, a queer-identified person as well as a parent to a queer-identified kid. My name is Stephanie Zero. I am a teen services librarian at Redmond Library. I go by she, her pronouns, and I host a teen advisory board called the Rainbow Teen Advisory Board for LGBTQ plus teens and allies on the east side. And is there any exciting programming coming up for Pride that you'd like to tell us about? Yes! (laughs) Okay, so our next event is called Lost in Wonderland. It's a dance. It's going to be held at the Old Firehouse Teen Center in Redmond, June 14th, which is a Friday from 7 to 10 p.m. It's free snacks will be provided. (laughs) So along those same lines, KCLS will be part of the Seattle Pride Parade this year. And we will also have a table at Trans Pride Seattle. And does that involve like bringing out the bookmobile? Like what can folks do? So for the parade, it'll just be the bookmobile, but people won't be checking out books or anything like that. For the tabling event, we'll have access to the internet and we'll bring books for people to check out as well as um, library card applications for them to fill out. So one of KCLS's values is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that's really reflected in our collection. There are so many different stories to choose from. And you guys have some to share with us, right? Totally. (laughs) The first one, Dreadnought. Is was brought to me by a Rainbow Tab member. That's Rainbow Teen Advisory Board. Um, and Dreadnought is the world's greatest superhero. Um, and Danny is a transgender girl. And she, the only safe way she has to express herself is by painting her toenails. And so she's in the mall parking lot painting her toenails when she sees this superhero fight, like, in the near distance, and Dreadnought, the world's greatest superhero, like, falls down basically in front of her and dies. And he's like, take the orb! (laughs) And, you know, she takes this, this orb and she becomes Dreadnought, but she is also transformed into... The body of a girl, the the body that she has always known should be her body. And um, then she goes home and her parents are like, who are you? (laughs) So it's this really great, um, you know, finding out your superpowers and like coming out to your friends and family. And that's Dreadnought by transgender author April Daniels. And another one I had a lot of fun reading. I actually listened to a lot of my audio bo- or listened to a lot of my books. So The Disasters by M.K. England is about these um, students who have been kicked out of the Space Academy. And right as they're getting on the shuttle back to Earth, terrorists hijack the Academy. But they escape <laughs> <laughs> to, you know, into outer space. And they're going to tell everybody what happened. But then they turn on the news and they're being blamed for the attack. So they, you know, it's total, they're on the run and everybody's after them. And um, there's, the author describes it as a queer Guardians of the Galaxy meets the Breakfast Club with a diverse (laughs) cast of characters. So it's got a bisexual pilot and a transgender med student and a hijabi hacker. Um, just fun, fast-paced. Um, Are there jocks in space? Yeah, yes, one of them is a jock, yes. <laughs> and so MK England is queer. You know what I think is super... Can I just say what's super interesting about this 10 to try category? Mm-hmm. Is how do you find out if the author's queer? Mm-hmm. It's a really good question because you can't search it in the catalog. You can know about like the content of a story, but that doesn't tell you about the author themselves. And so it really takes like some investigative work. 
It does. And we've made some lists on the website to kind of help people, but there's more than we can make lists of. And it's sort of this interesting line, right? Like we're wanting people to read broadly and we're wanting to hear not only different stories, but we're wanting, wanting to hear from other kinds of voices. And that's why the category is by an LGBTQ author instead of an LGBTQ character. But it it is sort of this balance of like, you don't want to force people, obviously, to be out or to be public with their identities. And um, so it's been interesting to, to kind of try and navigate that. Um, when people are trying to find books in this category, be like, do your best. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that's sort of the spirit of the whole challenge is like, mm-hmm. do your best, stretch yourself. And if something, if you read a book that you, you know, genuinely thought was going to fit in a category and you later discover that it doesn't, it's okay. All is forgiven. We just want you to read. <laughs> yeah, hopefully it was a really good book. Yeah. You're not going to come after us. No, yeah. So for people who are looking for books that are written from the perspective of an author who shares the identity of the characters in their book, there's something called hashtag own voices. Emily, could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So it's exactly what it sounds like. Uh, It's a story about someone from a marginalized population that's written by an author who is from that same Population. So if you're reading an, a story about an LGBTQ character, or like, a, for example, in Dreadnought, it's a story about a transgender character. The author is also transgender, so we would call that an own voices story. And there are lots of stories about queer characters that are not own voices stories. And there are also lots of books by queer authors that are about straight characters that would also not be own voices stories. So there's, it's not necessarily better. It's just a way of thinking about what kinds of stories are we hearing and who are we hearing them from like emily mentioned um we do have some lists online on our website that we'll link to in the show notes um that highlight some of our favorites when it comes to YA, lgbtq uh authors and books for adults and also children yeah so speaking of ones we like i want to hear more from Kristen. okay i'm ready (laughs) uh because Emily and I sit next to each other, we often talk about books. And I have a specific type of book that I tend to listen to, depending on what's happening in my life. And those are cheesy, feel-good, romantic books. Uh, and so I've got a couple here that I wanted to talk about. One is a graphic novel that I think technically is for youth, but uh, made me squeal. No judgments. <laughs> um, and also my 13-year-old read it and also squealed. So it started out as a webcomic like so many other uh, queer graphic novels do and then got published and it was part of someone's art school final project, something along those lines. But we have it on our shelves and it's called Rock and Riot. I don't know if any of you have read it. I've seen it, yeah. Yes. (laughs) Um, I've read it more than once, although I don't own it. I probably should. It's basically like if... Without the smut, if John Waters' crybaby era was turned into a queer graphic novel. So I grew up really, once again, probably not appropriate for me as a child, but loving John Waters' films. And Crybaby was a huge influence on me and probably one of the reasons why I'm queer. Um, <laughs> but those were highly sexualized movies. And this is not that. This is about a 1950s gang rival, um, but let's pretend like you're not having to deal with racism uh, and everyone is sort of on even footing, but there are queer characters in both of these gangs. And so when you're talking about crushes that you have, and maybe you have a crush on a rival gang member, um, maybe, yes, <laughs> yeah, it is. or maybe you're questioning your own gender identity and you're not sure whether your gang members are going to accept you. Um, and so it's about vulnerability and also the hair and <laughs> the jean jackets. Yes. Um, and something that I can really get into uh, is the whole, like, butch femme identity. And so they have that there with the amazing wardrobe. And then they have, like, non-binary characters who take your idea of what is and what is femme and like turns it on its head so it has all the things that i love 
including visual representations of queer characters, which is one of the reasons why I love graphic novels, is because instead of describing what a person looks like, I get to see the artist's visual representation of my community. So that's one of my feel-good ones. Um, I just put it on hold. It sounds <laughs> fantastic. Yeah. Uh, Rock and Riot by Chelsea Ferrudi. Does anyone say beat it creep at any moment? Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> they, they have to. Is there snapping? <laughs> I don't know if there are any dance battles, but there I'll might survive. be. Maybe yeah. in a sequel. One of the complaints I have about graphic novels, I have nothing but compliments except for the complaints are that they're too short. You read them and then they're over before you know it because a lot of it is you looking at pictures and you go back and look at them. You won't have that complaint with On a Sunbeam because I think it's somewhere around 600-ish pages. I think like 500. S- somewhere. Substantial. A very, yes, substantial. And it's about a late teens girl that tra- that travels through the universe with a team of construction workers. And we go back in time to see her in high school. And we follow a couple of other characters who have sort of a parallel narrative to her. And it's gay. <laughs> but that's not necessarily, even though love is a, is a driving force behind it, um, I don't necessarily, I don't think I would call it a love story. Would you call it a love story? I love the love story, but I feel like its ending isn't one that we're used to seeing, which is very much full of possibility. Um, Part of the way these two different timelines reconnect uh, are to reconnect these two characters who never really got to say goodbye. Mm -hmm. And I feel like in the movie version of this, like, they're still in love <laughs> mm-hmm. and you know, they're, they're together. Um, and I'm not going to say what does or doesn't happen in the end, but I feel like just the approach of this person who's going on this like pretty incredible mission to find this person again, that she's doing it in a spirit of like, we were children then and mm-hmm. so much time has passed and I don't know where you are or if you even want to be rescued, but like, I'm going to come there and find out. Yeah. I, th- I think it's also about, family and finding the people that you have as your chosen family and the things that you'll do for one another Mm -hmm. um, based out of that chosen family, like going on an adventure to have closure or to rescue or connect with someone from your past. And I think it's so lovely how like the first part of the book is very quiet and is sort of like hanging out in bunk beds and playing this like D and D style mm-hmm. game and goofing off at work, like climbing on stuff, just spending a lot of time, like letting the characters get to know each other and open up and be vulnerable so that when it does eventually arrive in this kind of high stakes action adventure, mm-hmm. it feels so like real and consequential. I think, yeah, the first 100 to 150 pages, I thought, okay, I'm enjoying this, but this feels like a teen story. And while I can connect with the teen who I used to be with this, I don't know if it's going to go to a place that I'm going to find satisfying. That changed. There were some plot twists. Um, Tilly Walden is the author. And I think that they are an example of someone who started a webcomic that was wildly popular and then got published also a baby, 22, 23, amazing. But there's so many, so much content out there that is being put out by people who are actively experiencing whatever they're writing about at that time. And they might be 19 or 18 or younger. Um, I would recommend this book to anyone who likes graphic novels, not just for the story that it that it shows, but also because you don't have to say goodbye so quite so quickly. <laughs> and um, I think you can go back and really delve into um, different dialogue. I took pictures of like a handful of pages because they can, I connected so strongly with them. Um, comments about society or queerness or family. And yeah, I think it's really worth studying. It'd be a good book, book club mm. uh, choice. Um, the other one, I guess this is also in the 1950s, so maybe <laughs> set in the 1950s, um, so maybe I have a type. Um, it was written in the 90s by a lesbian named Mabel Maney, and it's called The Case of the Good-for-Nothing Girlfriend, and it's part of a trilogy, although we only have this one in our catalog. Um, it's a parody 
of Nancy Drew. And so the it's called Nancy Clue and the Hardly Boys. <laughs> and so every character is queer, but they still follow the same sort of tropes. So there's a lot of like butch femme identities. Um, the Hardly Boys are obviously effeminate gay men. But even though it's a parody, even though it's a parody, um, it pays homage to these books. I know when I was a kid, my dad still had the Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys mysteries that I read, and I really loved them. I haven't read them as an adult, by the way, so I'm sure they're incredibly problematic. <laughs> I, I just read them like two weeks ago. Did you? I mean, one. I read a Nancy Drew oh. two weeks ago, and How I was, was like, this has to be adapted <laughs> as a queer novel. <laughs> you can you Yeah, can so I'm, it I'm putting later. that on hold, yes. Um, P.S. There's a book, I think it's called Girl Sleuth, which looks at all of the ghostwriters of Nancy Drew over the years and how Nancy changed to sort of reflect Mm -hmm. our idea of what a young woman could or should be at the time. It's super fascinating to see that sort of evolution, but also you're very correct that if you go back with modern lenses, there's some stuff in there that like, oh, sure, it's worth examining. (laughs) Yes. And I would hope that, yeah, that future adaptations would make accommodations for that. Um, This, the particular storyline is about, for this one, I think Nancy Clue is blamed for her father's murder. Uh, And so she and Cherry Aimless, which is her girlfriend, go back to their hometown and have to defend her. uh, And antics ensue. And also a lot of gayness. But it's sweet gayness. It's not, once again, the smuttiness that I'm and other venues might want from some novels. Um, So both of these are super cheesy and full of love, and I have read them both multiple times. There is, um, well, I have a couple other books, but there's one in particular that falls sort of under Pride Month, but is not written by a person who I know to be queer. Um, But for me as a person who has a trans kiddo, this book was exactly what I needed. I've read every single book there is about how to raise a kid who is queer or trans or has ADHD or any other sort of diagnoses. Um, And it's called Where's My Book? A Guide for Transgender and Gender Nonconforming Youth, Their Parents, and Everyone Else by Dr. Linda Gromko. So she's a Seattle, local Seattle author and doctor, also happens to be my kid's GP. (laughs) Um, And she sees a lot of trans patients here. And she saw this lack of content for people. Parents were coming to her saying, okay, how do I navigate this? I don't know. And there've been a lot of books out there about what it's like to experience being trans growing up or what it's like to have feelings about being a trans parent. Um, but not the practical, like, here's how you get your name changed. Here's some of the side effects of hormones. Here's how you can talk to your kid's teacher about how to respect their pronouns. It's this giant book that you can flip through that really has practical hands-on guide of what it's like to be a parent uh, or or the things that you need to know so that you don't traumatize your kid, basically. Uh, And I would want everyone to read it ever. So... This is not a specific novel recommendation. However, Radcliffe is this very prolific lesbian romance writer, and we have several of her books in our collection. Some are audiobooks, some are ebooks, some are actually in print. And she does a lot of the uniform first responder lesbian romance. So if that's a thing, you like romance and you identify with one of those, or if you don't identify, they're just straight up romances. If you like romances, check those out. All right. Well, not straight up, I guess. You know, I feel like we should mention no matter what your thing is, we have this wonderful service called book match um, that will help you find it. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Emily? You tell us what you're interested in and a KCLS librarian will create a list of books just for you. So there's a little form you can fill out on the website. You just go to kcls.org slash book match, which is exactly how it sounds. B-O-O-K-M-A-T-C-H. And feel free to get as specific as you'd like. Yes. Yeah. If you want nothing 
but lesbian romances featuring women in uniform, we will create a list for you. <laughs> We're on it. Awesome. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Really fun. So delightfully fun. Thanks for listening. You can find all the books mentioned in today's episodes in our show notes. The Desk Set is hosted by librarians Britta Barrett and Emily Calkins, produced by Britta Barrett, and brought to you by the King County Library System. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts.